if you uh, can turn there to page 13, it's the next page. We're going to look at this morning uh, Ephesians chapter 4, the first 16 verses of this uh, chapter in this uh, hugely significant letter that the Apostle Paul has written to the church in Ephesus. So we're going to pick up here in verse 1. Feel free to follow along or you can just listen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he he ascended, What does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, and to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as you may remember uh, earlier, Matt mentioned that we're going to have a congregational meeting at the end of this month, and as a part of that, we're going to uh, kick off a, a season of nominations for church office or church leadership here at Red Mountain Church. And um, So for the month of January, what I would like to do is to look at this topic, look at the question of church leadership, and do that by looking at several passages that uh, unfold for us what is God's design and intention for the church, and how it's supposed to operate and function and and grow and mature and excel. And so really what I want to do is begin... By going back to one of our, our, to our very first core value here at Red Mountain, which are listed there on the front page of your uh, worship folder. Our first core value is gospel centrality. And among many things that that value in, uh, tries to encapsulate, it means that everything that we do is because of the good news about Jesus, and it flows from what Jesus has done, and what he has given us as his people. And so, what I want to do this morning by looking at this passage is try to give us a gospel framework for thinking about the life of the church, and in particular, 
a framework that sets us up to understand church leadership and our collective responsibility as both church leaders as well as church members. So there's perhaps, I think, no better passage than this one to help give us this framework. And just to orient you a little bit where we are in this letter, uh, the first three chapters of Ephesians is a total of 56 verses. And in those 56 verses, there is only one command. What that ought to tell you is the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is unfolding for us the glorious riches of God's free grace. Paul begins not with who we are or who we aren't or what we have done or we have not done. He begins with God and what God has done in Jesus. And then when he comes to chapter 4, from here on out, the instructions for how to live in light of all of that grace begins to flow in spades. Command after command, rooted in God's free gift of grace in Jesus Christ. And as we see here, the very first thing Paul says is, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Then it's important at the outset here, I want you just to see this one command of to walk in a manner worthy of this calling really sets the stage for what is, is to follow here. And so I want you to understand when Paul says worthy here, he does not mean to earn. What this word worthy really means is the idea of fitting or appropriate. Or as Paul says elsewhere in Galatians 2, he says to keep in step with the truth of the gospel. Um, maybe, maybe a way to think about this is like Legos. Uh, Legos are a great example of the shapes and the colors all have to fit together in order for you to build that Lego set. And that's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's laid out all of these, this beautiful uh, panoramic view of what God has done, how he's done it, and where he's going to take us. And now, Paul is beginning to put that panoramic view together in real people's lives. That's what he's talking about when he says to walk in a manner worthy of this calling is to walk in such a way, to live the life of faith in such a way that it fits with who God is and what he's done for you in Christ. So, briefly, what's this look like? Again, I'm just trying to orient us here. We're going we're gonna to hone in here in just a moment. But what this looks like, this life of faith in verses 1 through 6, Paul here stresses how the riches of grace create a profound unity among God's people. And it's a unity that has a very distinct personality a personality of humility and gentleness and patience. And then in verse 7, though, we read that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verses 1 through 6 stresses a gospel unity. Verses 7 says that there is a gospel diversity. 
There is a profound unity, but there's not a uniformity. And I want you to notice this because it's crucial for thinking about how the church operates by God's design. What Paul is telling us here is that Jesus, his good news creates an an utterly unique kind of community where there is on the one hand a profound, even otherworldly spiritual unity that God's people enjoy. And it's not because we are homogenous. It's not because we have lots of things in common. This unity comes from being connected to Jesus. And what's amazing about this kind of unity is Jesus and Jesus alone can bring two radically different people from radically different backgrounds, from radically different preferences and priorities and interests and make them the best of friends, like family. And at the same time, this community has a beautiful and rich diversity. And it's the gospel that makes that possible. And it celebrates that. And so what I want to do when we look at this is I want us to see three things from this passage to help give us a framework as we move our way through this month looking at the church and Jesus' design for how we are to live together and especially how we are to be led by those that God gives us to lead us in the faith. First of all, I want us to look at the giver of gifts and then we're going to look at the goal of those gifts and then finish with the community of gifts. So first, let's look at the giver of gifts. And this is an obvious point. I've already said it. But if the, the main idea this morning is that everything we're going to look at today and in the coming weeks, I want you to hear as a gift from Jesus. That the giver of gifts here is Jesus himself. Verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Look down in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And as we'll look here in a moment, when you look at verse 8, this is being applied to Jesus where it says that he gave gifts to men. At the outset here, as Paul enters into what is the life of the church like? How does it work? He begins with the giver of gifts. He begins with Jesus. And what do we learn about Jesus as the giver of gifts from this passage? Well, we learn about it by pausing here over verses 8 through 10. And here Paul is quoting from Psalm 68, verse 18, there in verse 8. And we've been reading from Psalm 68 this morning on purpose. Because Paul quotes from this psalm here in speaking about Jesus. And in that psalm, if you were to sit down and read the whole thing, it's kind of long. It's a beautiful song that describes God as a triumphant king. As a triumphant warrior who has been out in battle and he's conquered all of his enemies. And he's come home and he's being welcomed by all of his people. And he's being celebrated as this conquering hero. And as Psalm 68 describes, this conquering king, he comes home and there's this 
big celebration. And the people are giving gifts to him, honoring him, celebrating him. And yet when we come to what Paul does with this verse, in verse 8, he does something very interesting. Because when Paul quotes Psalm 68, he actually says something a little bit different. Instead of this conquering king receiving gifts from men, he says that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts. What's Paul doing? Paul here sees in this psalm Jesus as the fulfillment of what's pictured there. Think of it like this. Particularly when he says here that when he ascended on high, Paul here, when he looks at Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation to the right hand of his Father in heaven, he sees Jesus as a conquering king. Who, as he describes in verses 9 to 10, descended. He came down to earth. He lived among normal everyday people to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And astoundingly, he lives a life of tragic consequence. It ends in death. It doesn't look like a victorious, triumphant king. And that's the beauty of the gospel is that it's actually in the cross, the death of Jesus, that we see the power of God. That Jesus conquers by dying. That he conquers sin and death and all who stand opposed to him. And he has ascended into heaven. And he sits at the right hand of the Father and he's received gifts. What has he received? He's received glory and honor He has received the name that is above every name. And then Paul says, this king even goes one step further than receiving gifts from his people. He turns around and pours out his riches and his gifts on his people. What's Paul have in view here? What he has in view here is the Holy Spirit. If we had time and we could go look at Acts chapter 2, Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on on the church. And from that point on, we see the church growing and suffering and growing and rejoicing and suffering and struggling and growing and rejoicing. Jesus, what Paul is describing here is that Jesus as this conquering king who has said to you, I will not leave you alone. In John 14, verse 18. Matthew 28, verse 20, he says, and I am with you to the end of the age. Now that's after Jesus has resurrected from the dead. The last thing he says to his disciples, he says, I am, present tense, with you to the end of the age. Not I will be, I am with you. How? Because he has poured out the gift of his spirit upon his people. I want you to think about that. We are not here this morning worshiping someone who's not with you. Jesus tells us he is the giver 
of gifts, the gift of all gifts, the third person of the Trinity dwells in you if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus. He is present with us this morning because he says he is with us and he will not leave us. Now, what kind of gifts then does Jesus give as this conquering king who promises to be with his people? Well, first of all, I want you to notice here that to answer this question, in verses 11 through 16, even all through this passage, the church is described as a body. Paul uses a metaphor of, of a body to describe the church. And it's a very fitting one because why? It, there's a unity and yet there's a diversity of parts. And every single part is essential to the thriving and flourishing of that body. Take any one part away and it can't quite thrive the way that the body is designed to thrive. And so, even as we learn here that Jesus provides all the gifts that his people need, in verse 11, we are told that he gives specific gifts for the nurture and the well-being and the growth of this body. Look in verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers... Now, what's, what do all of these gifts have in common? We could say that these are word gifts. Now, what that means is, think of it like this. When, when uh, we read elsewhere where uh, the scriptures say that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God's mouth. How does this body get the nourishment that it needs? to grow and mature and to thrive. It's from God's word. And who is responsible for ministering that word to you? It is these gifts, these specific gifts that Jesus gives to this body. And the main point I want you to see here is that as we talk about church leadership, what Jesus is doing here is he is saying there are specific roles, or as we, could, we often refer to them, as offices in the church that are gifts from Jesus to you for your spiritual health and well-being and growth. Now, I have to say, it's a little weird to be the one up here saying, in effect, I'm a gift to you. <laughs> I'm sure there are sometimes you have been like, yeah, wish I could take that one back. Um, I understand. Sometimes that might go both ways, but I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but really what I want us to see, we have to look at one another and understand that we are gifts to one another. And you are a gift to me. Your elders are gifts to you and they are given to you from the very hands of Jesus because he loves you. This is gospel centrality for church leadership. 
And what I want you to see is these specific offices, Jesus, by design, has given us these. And we're going to look at them in the weeks to come. But what is the main purpose of these gifts? These word gifts. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. In other words, the gifts that I've been given, the gifts that your elders have been given, the gifts that your deacons have been given, are not for them to use on themselves. And I just want you to to hear me say up front, if you ever think that I or any other officer in this church is abusing those gifts and is turning those gifts into a means of self-interest and self-promotion, I want you to say something. You should not allow that to continue in the church. Because the gifts that I have, the gifts that your elders and deacons have, they are for you. And they are to be used for you. And they are to be used for people who wouldn't even dare darken the door of this church. And they are given to equip you. Now this term equip is really fascinating. Because it actually comes from the medical world. In the ancient world. And it's this idea... To equip means used to be used to describe the process of restoring broken limbs. So I want you to think about this. For It's an image that's being given to you and to me. That we are like a broken arm. Like a broken leg. That we, we need to be restored. And so these gifts, these word gifts that speak good words to you are really to restore life to spiritual health. That's the purpose of these gifts. To restore lives that are full of havoc and guilt and shame. To give words of hope and promise and forgiveness and good news. And not only that, but to actually help you become the man or woman God designed you to become, to prepare you for works of ministry in his name. God has a job for you. He needs you to be a part of what he's doing. It's an amazing calling. These are these gifts. This is the purpose of those gifts. But let's look for a moment. What is the ultimate goal of these gifts? Number two, there is a goal here, and, and there's an underlying assumption that we're already orbiting around when we look into verses 13 and 14. And the underlying assumption is this about how the church is intended to operate. God has an assumption about you and me, and it's this that God accepts you as you are. He saves sinners by grace, not by your works, not by your efforts, not by your good intentions. God accepts you as you are, but he will not leave you as you are. Do you hear that? God accepts you as you are. He expects nothing from you. 
except to receive what he freely gives. But here's the thing. When you receive what he freely gives you in Jesus, everything has to change. He is not going to leave you where you are. Now, some of you, that might be threatening. That might be kind of scary. Others of you might be sitting here and going, man, that's the best news ever. Because I don't want to stay the way I am. I need to be changed. And the whole point here is that the gospel, these gifts that we are given as the church, are not just for information's sake. They're for transformation. Therefore, unfolding before you the, all the new possibilities that are now yours in Jesus. And what might these key changes be? Let's look in verse 13 and just highlight two. First of all, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, you see, the goal of these gifts is that you and I would experience a deep unity with Jesus Christ at the center. Now, we don't have time to go into this, but back in, in chapter 2, Paul spends several verses saying that the unity that the church is to experience, however much we struggle at it, however hard it can be, that unity is only possible because Jesus reconciles sinners to one another. He not only reconciles sinners to himself and to his Father and to the Spirit, but to one another. We would have an experience of deep unity with Jesus at the center. But then second, that we would become more like Jesus. Verse 13 again, until we all attain to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, I don't, I don't know about you. It's always, you know, whenever there's an, a new year, uh, some of you might be really into, okay, this is, I'm starting over. I've got my plans. And these are ways I'd like to grow and be better this year. That's great. I'm, I'm for that stuff. But there's something you got to understand. Any growth, any self-improvement, any change in your life that doesn't come from Jesus isn't really growth. It might be a good idea. You might actually have some real benefits from certain things. But true Growth. Growth that enables you to live a truly human life the way God designed for you to flourish and to live. That growth only comes from becoming more and more like Jesus. That his life would increasingly be woven into your life. Now, what, what's... Uh, What's the big deal about all of that? Why, why, are these goal, why is the ultimate goal of these gifts so important? Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Here's the, the simple point. Without these gifts that Jesus gives, 
we will never grow up. We'll never mature. We will live lives of instability. We will live lives that are uh, easily persuaded by lies and falsehoods and attractive things that are really trickery. I'll give you a great example. Um, You know, I, I talk with my boys a lot about what they will encounter on the internet. And one of the hardest things I think about being a parent these days is just the relentless demand to police content that is coming at you. And you really can't stem the tide. And one of my boys in particular is particularly sensitive to this. And uh, he loves to look up things that he's really interested in. And every now and then, uh, a picture of a scantily clad woman will pop up advertising the very thing that he's interested in. And we have all these conversations about that and having to say, that is a deceitful scheme. How do you grow up in the midst of that? How do you mature as a human being when there are all kinds of things in your life that want to knock you off balance and keep you from ever catching your footing? And the answer to that is the gifts that Jesus has given us as a body that we would flourish and grow together and become more like Jesus. Now, I want to help us wrap this up by looking at, in some places in the Bible, to be, to assume the posture of a child is a very good thing. Uh, An attitude and posture of a child, sometimes Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom. But here, to remain as a child is a bad thing. What's the alternative to continuing to live as children who never seem to really grow up? And the answer to that is, I think, in verses 15 to 16 here, which I'm calling the community of gifts. He says in verse 15, rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And what I want you to see here is, you don't do this alone. The Christian life is not a solo journey. It's not a solo flight. It's something that we do together. Verse 13, notice, until we all attain. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. Verse 15, we are to grow up. This is something that we do together. What that means is, if your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are not growing, you aren't either. And if you are growing, that means others have to be growing too. That's how a body works. So, what might that look like? What is the, how does that happen? And there's an underlying truth, a reality about this community. And it is the idea here of love. Notice in verse 2, bearing with one another in love. Verse 15, 
speaking the truth in love. Verse 16, building one another up in love. Love is the, what girds all of this together, wraps it all up. Why is that so important? Well, take in verse 16 when it says, speaking the truth in love. What is important about that? You know, the reason it's important is because it's not just what we say to each other. It's why we're saying it. It does matter what we're saying to one another. But even more, it matters why. And here's the, here's the, here's the question. Do you want what Jesus wants for the person you're talking to and living with? What makes that kind of love possible? Well, we've seen it. Jesus. He's the head of the body. He's the giver of gifts. And so why should we care about this? Why should we begin here when we talk about the church and leadership in the church? And the answer is very simple because Jesus gave his life for this body of people. And because he gave gifts, he gives us his life. That's why we should care about this. It's not just a good idea some people came up with. This is Jesus' idea. He has good gifts to give you and to give me as his people here at Red Mountain. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this passage. We give you thanks for how you tell us what you want to give us and that you have given it to us. And we pray that as we move through these passages looking at your design and intention for the church this month, that you would keep before us your love for sinners like us and your desire for us to grow and to mature and to be fruitful as your people here in this place, this side of heaven, as we await that great day when you will return and make all things new. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.